Thank you for downloading this sermon from Heritage Baptist Church. We are so glad that you did. We believe that biblically faithful, Christ-centered, God-glorifying local churches are the primary means that God has chosen to expand His kingdom. If you are part of such a church, we hope that this message will supplement your spiritual diet. If you aren't yet part of such a church, we would love for you to visit us. For more details, please check out our website www.heritagebaptist.co.za Well, good morning. Good morning. Won't you join me in the book of Acts this morning? We are continuing our study in the book of Acts. Uh, the weather forecast tells us that There will be rain at Michael's house in the afternoon, so I'll try to be brief so that those who are being baptized don't get baptized in sprinkling and in water as well. So I'll I'll try to be quick this morning. Uh, Acts chapter 4, we are in verse 32. We have been slowly tracking through this book, uh, trying to see what the Lord did when he... Uh, When the Lord Jesus Christ left, ascended into heaven and started working uh, through visible acts through his church. And uh, we find ourselves in a summary section this morning in Acts chapter 4, verse 32 to verse 35. This section summarizes for us the life of the church up until that point. It is a, a snapshot, as it were, of life. In, in Jerusalem at that point. Let me read for you from verse 32. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. This is God's word. If you were asked, how would you describe the kingdom of God? Somebody came to you and asked you, asked you, describe for me the kingdom of God. What would you say? What does the kingdom of God look, look like? Let's ask the question perhaps in a different way. How would you know that the kingdom of God has arrived. The New Testament makes a few things clear about the kingdom of God. One of them is that the arrival of the Lord Jesus, the king of the kingdom, means that the kingdom itself has arrived. And another thing that the New Testament makes clear, particularly in Luke chapter 17, is that the kingdom of God is not a place, not a place that you can look for to see, 
but it is rather the reign of God in his people. That his people are ruled by him. While the the kingdom of God is yet to completely overtake this world, that moment is coming, it has already arrived. And there are signs that it has arrived. And the, 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 the most important, biggest sign was the arrival of the king. But after the king left, there were other signs that scream loudly that the kingdom of God has arrived. Visibly, visible manifestations that attest that something is different. A new age has begun. An example of those signs, an example of the visible manifestation that the kingdom of God has indeed arrived is the text in front of us this morning. The text in front of us paints an idyllic picture. A picture of a people who are completely given over to the rule of God in their lives. Such that from within them comes true and practical righteousness. This text is not interested in discussing economic theory or the best political solution to society as many try to make it to mean. Instead, the Holy Spirit, through Luke's hand here, wants to show us that the kingdom of God has truly arrived because the people described here are living in a manner that evidences, that shows that they are ruled by God. What we have here is a description of love that is truly sincere, of faith that permeates identity, of hearts and minds completely divested of themselves and invested in godly aims and attitudes. We have here in front of us this morning a solid, undeniable proof that the promises of God are indeed yes and amen. That when God said through Jeremiah, that no one would need to be told to know God and know God's law, but everyone would know God and know His law for themselves, Jeremiah was not mistaken. As we walk through this text, we need to look out for a few things. Luke is not primarily here interested in asking us to emulate these people. Luke is telling us how this Jewish Christian community lived so that we can see the powerful work of God in people. What the law could not do, the gospel has done. The law required people to love their neighbors. The gospel produces a people who love their neighbors so much that they are willing to sell their possessions for the sake of the material needs of their fellow believers. Now, what is clear by implication is that if we have the same gospel that this group had, if we have the same spirit that this group had, if we have the same power and grace at work among us that this group had, then it follows that we will have exactly the same attitudes. That will evidence the same selflessness Godliness, care, love, and other-centeredness. 
The first thing that Luke brings to our attention is the remarkable unity of the full number of the saints. Look at verse 32. Now the full number of those who believe were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Well, just like we saw last week, that they prayed with one voice, so also here we see that they are, in general, of one heart and soul. It is remarkable here that Luke is using the sweeping statement that these people, the full number of over 5,000 people at this point, to be of one heart and soul. It is a remarkable thing. Try finding 5,000 people and have them to be of one mind and soul, one heart and soul. The idea in this phrase is that they loved one another. There was a, a commonality between them, that they are truly one. Last week we saw that they had ownership over each other, that they belonged to, the, to each other. We saw that when we looked at it last week when they prayed. But this particular text amplifies that idea. Not just that they belong to each other in mutual affection, but they are of one heart, one soul. There is a real pursuit of the same things together and a real affection for one another such that it spills over into every area of their lives, including possessions. This text, the text in front of us is mainly talking to us about what they did with their possessions. And in talking about their possessions, Luke wants us to know that no one considered what they had to be their own, but that they wanted to have what they have to be for the common use. The idea is that the believers who had something made sure that the, believer, that the believers who didn't have anything did not go without. This phrase, that they had everything in common, has at its core the idea of fellowship, of true and lasting partnership. That they are partners together, not just in the gospel and its proclamation, but because of the gospel and its proclamation, they are partners also in life, in bread, in water, in a roof over their heads. They look out for one another. They share with each other what they have. And they participate. They partner in each other's lives. A few features are important to note. First, it is essential to note in this text that the activity that Luke focuses on here is the joyful sacrifice of one's own possessions for the sake of others. Luke wants us to see that the unity of heart and soul produced within the disciples a desire to see the whole community flourish. It was internal. Luke does not focus here on the teachings of the apostles in that regard. Did you notice that? He does not say that the apostles were teaching that the church should care for one another, although they probably were teaching that. The focus that Luke has is on the, is on the shared desire for everyone's 
flourishing because of a unity of heart and soul. It's internal. Luke wants us to see that this was not faked, this was not coerced, this was not plotted. It was entirely a result of changed hearts that are now ruled by God and living in line with the word of God. There has been a serious change in these people. Something has happened that has completely rocked each and every one of these people's lives. Such that as a community of over 5,000, they are of one heart and soul. And they cannot bear to have one of them go to sleep hungry. I was thinking about what the lesson is for us. And after struggling for a while, it became evident to me that it's staring me in the face. You see, this is produced by God. This is produced by God. This is as a result of the work of the Holy Spirit in each of these people's lives. You need to think about this. Love for other believers is practical and real for those who are believers. Love for other believers is practical and true for those who are believers. Throughout the New Testament, one of the clearest and basic tests of whether or not someone is a Christian is whether or not they love other Christians. It is a basic test. It is a a basic assumption that if somebody has met God, that they will love other people who have met God. John talks about it in in 1 John chapter 3. James talks about it in James chapter 2. Paul recognizes it as a sign of the Colossians, as the sea of faith in Colossians chapter 1. That they, as a collective, the Colossians, were loving all sorts of Christians that they had never met. One of the easiest signs of the sincerity of the faith of someone is that they love internally and want to love practically other believers. There is no spirit of Christ that comes within us and leaves us without a care for the well-being of others who have the spirit of Christ. It doesn't exist. If the spirit of Christ is truly within us, he will long for Christ, he will long for year, for righteousness and he will yearn and pant for the well-being of God's people that are around us. If you're here this morning and and wondering whether or not you are in Christ, wondering whether or not your profession of faith is real, look no further than this. In 1 John chapter 3, John says, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. We know that we have passed out of death into love because we love the brothers. The brothers. And when he says the brothers, he's not talking about your siblings. He's not talking about your blood brothers or your cousins. He's talking about Christians. That this is a love that is truly for those who belong to Jesus Christ. If, if you're wondering if this, if, uh, how do I know that truly now have I, have I grabbed a hold of the faith, the true faith that saves, the living faith that James talks about, the one that actually has feet and legs. How do I know that I have it? You love other Christians. You deeply love, you deeply desire to see them flourish 
You want to see them spiritually flourish. You want to see them physically flourish. You want to see the believers around you that you're holding hands together with. You want to see them, see their lives go forward in the Lord. If that does not exist in you, you are not a Christian. If that does not exist in you, if you just want to be you and God and you could not care nothing for any other believer, you have no evidence that you are a Christian. You, you, uh, young people in the church, as you're considering, maybe you meet people from other churches or from even here, and you're trying to consider if this is a proper person to marry. Look at how they treat other believers in their context. If they, if they have no care for other believers in their context, and, or they have no believers in their context at all, you should have every, every reason to worry that this person might not be in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you, if you look within, and you find within yourself a real love for other Christians, where you want to care for their well-being, then John says in 1 John, Rejoice! Praise God, you have passed from death to life. The Spirit of God is truly at work within you and you have every reason to rejoice. You know, John wrote his his letter of 1 John so that those who read it might have joy. So once you start to see and you read, yes, that's true of me. Yes, I do indeed love other believers. I don't fake it. It's true. It's there. You praise God for it because that's where it comes from. And you praise God because it means that truly you will be with those people and the Lord Jesus Christ forever in eternity. It is, it is something to praise God for. Well, that's the first thing that's essential for us to note. The second thing that is worth noting here is that the church here in front of us shows a godly priority of life in life. They show a godly priority. It is no secret, dear saints, as you would know, that even when we have become believers, we have to fight through a full fog of competing priorities. There are all kinds of priorities screaming at us, all kinds of things pulling at us, wanting us to go in particular direction. The reality of living with fallen flesh means that even though we might know which is the right priority to pursue in our lives or in a moment which is the right priority to pursue, sometimes we give in to the flesh. Now when you consider this, it is a great grace of God if a church can be generally described as people who pursue the right priorities. It is a great grace, a great working of God that there's a group that can be described that these people in general were pursuing the right priority. This church pursued the common good of God's people. That is massive. That is huge. A church of over 5,000 generally described using these terms. That is a powerful work of God. This doesn't mean that there weren't any bad apples among them and we will meet some very quickly next week in chapter 5 and further on in the future. But on balance, in general, when Luke wants to talk about this group of over 5,000, he describes them as people who are pursuing the common good of God's people. On this small assessment, let me tell you at least two enemies that these believers had conquered. 
at this point in time, two enemies that these believers had killed, had mortified, at least at this particular point in time. And those two enemies are the priority of self and the priority of more possessions. The priority of self and the priority of more possessions. For a group of people to be described this way means that in general, these people were not obsessed with themselves. They were not preoccupied with themselves, but they had an eye to the needs of the growing Christian community among them. A community like this must be a community of people who are deeply interested in the spiritual and physical needs of the people next to them in the church and not just focused on themselves alone. Let's put it another way. There exists a self-obsession, a being consumed with your own affairs that you are unable to see the plight of your brother or sister in the church. Not only are you unable to see it, you can't even be moved to compassion because you only care about your own life. There exists a concentration on your own affairs that shows a lack of care for the well-being of others. Now listen to me. Hear me clearly. We should all pay attention to our own affairs. We should all make sure that we discharge our own duties in our own families and our own lives in the proper way like Paul says to the Thessalonians but what I'm seeing in this text is a prioritizing of other people's needs that is impossible if all I care for if all I think about if all that moves me is me if I'm just about myself if I'm just about my own situation, in re- if really just in my mind I'm the person who has the most struggles and I, I could not really be bothered to sincerely ask my brother or sister near me how they're doing in their walk with the Lord and how they're doing practically in their lives. And sure, perhaps at church I might ask how the person is doing and then check out in my mind as soon as they start telling me how they're doing. There is a preoccupation with self, with me, that excludes care for others. That is a serious enemy that we must mortify, that we must kill, we must put to death. And by and large, it appears that in general, this group of saints here, especially those that Luke says had things to share, had overcome this self-obsession. The other priority that seems to be conquered in this community is the priority of more possessions, more stuff. There's no other way to slice it. For a person to be able to give of their own possessions, to even sell their possessions so that there is enough money for the benefit of the needy in the church means that the relationship that that person has with possessions is at an arm's length. Just look at the description at verse 34 with me for a second. Just toss your eyes to verse 34. There was not a needy person among them, for as many were owners of lands 
or houses, sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to each as any had need. These lands and houses were not sold for profit. These lands and houses were not sold for future investments. These lands and houses were not sold to better one's position in society. They were sold entirely and exclusively for the benefit of the needy within the group. They are not interested in gaining more, these people. They are not interested in stuffing their face, getting more and more, and being stuffed with more possessions and more stuff, and, and having garages full of more stuff and more stuff here. These people are, are just looking, wow, this, this, these people need stuff. Some of our number just need daily food. They're struggling to get work. There's struggles here. There's, there's real things. Let me do something. Let me sell this house of mine that I had spent however many years working up in order to be able to build. Let me sell these lands of mine that perhaps were mined by inheritance or whatever situation. Let me sell that and there will be no return to me. It will completely go for the safekeeping and the well-being of the people that Jesus Christ has died for. They are not interested in getting more stuff. They're not interested in getting the next thing and the next thing. The advertisements for the new iPhones have absolutely nothing on these people. They're just getting more stuff, just wanting, how can I get more stuff, get more stuff, get the latest, get the biggest, get the flashiest, be the biggest. They don't care about that, these people. They care about, here's so-and-so in the church who's going to bed hungry. Can't happen while I have an extra piece of land to sell. Now, dear saints, I hope you can see how intense this is. This is breathtaking stuff. These are changed lives. These are changed hearts. These are completely renewed minds. To kill these priorities, the priority of self, me, the priority of more possessions, more stuff, will require the Lord's help. For us to be a community that kills those priorities, that kills this self-obsession, this more possession that we're so prone to. Our dear saints, we're going to need the Lord's help. We're going to need God to work in us in a real way. This will require a prayer like the, like the one we saw last week. Give us, Lord, the grace to do your will. Just like it does not come naturally for a man to stand and proclaim Christ when we're being threatened with death. It also does not come naturally to sacrifice a house so that a believer in the church could have something to eat. It doesn't mean that this is necessarily what we'll be called to, that now we're saying all of us must sell houses and cars. It's not necessarily what this means. But what it certainly means is that we are required to have the same attitude. To have the same attitude, to use what we have for the benefit of others, in the way that they did, for the sake of the brothers. We must kill what it is that they killed in them. That we must have, we must overcome the, the, the distractions that we're not distracting to them. And it might look different for us. 
It might just mean committing yourself to picking up somebody every single Sunday to bring them to church. Okay? With petrol prices steeply high, okay? It, it might take an extra two or three kilometers, and those kilometers add up. But you have decided in your heart that this car, though it is mine, I am purposing to use it for the benefit of God's people. It might mean that you you offer meals to students. That you consider, sure, there's students among us, perhaps they need meals. Let me see what I can do to provide meals for them every now and again. There's something that, that is done here at church which is really wonderful. Where if somebody has an event, something happening in their home, perhaps a new baby, perhaps a loss of life, that the ladies band together and they organize meal. There's a long meal train to provide for somebody so that somebody does not have to think about cooking. And there's no reimbursement or receipts. I mean, I haven't heard that once all these meals were done, this person who was getting meals now has to pay back. None of it. We must have this idea and may the Lord help us. And we are to pray that the Lord grows this attitude within us. That we are to care and use what we have for the benefit of God's people. We are to use what we have, the material things we have, to benefit the ones who don't. John the Baptist, in John chapter 3, was preaching. And the people came to him as he was calling them all brood of vipers and telling them all kinds of things that they're, all of them, they're living in sin and they're pursuing sin. And then the people asked him, so what shall we do? And he said, it's simple. Well, he didn't say it's simple, but the way he explained it is simple. He said, the one who has two shirts, let him give to the one who has none. The one who has two shirts, two tunics, let him give to the one who has none. The one who has more food, let him give to the one who has no food. You understand this? It's rather simple. That I am to live a life of looking out among God's people who's struggling, who's who's lacking. What What do I have to of that I can give to this brother or sister in the Lord Jesus Christ? But for this to happen, the Lord needs to work in our hearts to separate us from ourselves. Separate us from just being completely obsessed with our own lives. And separate us from the love of more stuff and growing bank accounts. That we might be a people who love and treasure His people because He gave His life for them. And so we would give whatever we can for them as well. Well, while the believers are living this way, let me come back to the verse in the middle here, verse 33. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. In the midst of this community, the apostles are communicating the gospel of Jesus Christ to the Jewish community around them. And they were doing so with great power. Now, let me just mention, it is rather ambiguous what is meant by with great power here. It could be speaking about the energy and effectiveness by which the apostles are preaching. Or it could be referring to the miracles that were being done through the apostles. I am inclined to believe that Luke is referring to the former. Just because in the way that he puts down his sentence here. 
This here seems to be further evidence that the Lord answered the prayer of the church that they prayed in verse 29. God divinely enables the apostles to preach and testify powerfully regarding the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. As witnesses of the resurrection, they are telling the nation of Israel what they have seen and heard in the face of threats and accusations from the rulers. Luke also goes on here to say that great grace was upon them all. Did you see that? Great grace was upon all of them. The Lord was with these people, enabling the apostles to preach on the one hand, and fostering the bonds of love among the saints such that they love each other practically on the other hand. Two things. Enabled on the one hand to testify powerfully to, the, to everyone about the man Jesus Christ who rose from the dead. And enabled by grace on the, same, on the other hand to love one another fiercely in a real way. Luke's idyllic picture that he is painting of this community at this time leaves us with a distinctive taste in the mouth. And that taste is simplicity. There is a simplicity in this group. There isn't a lot of confusion. Sure, there must have been small issues here and there, and Luke is going to get into the bigger issues in the, in the, in the following chapters. But as he summarizes life for the, last, for the in the first church here, he wants us to have a picture of a church that is simply loving one another and proclaiming the gospel. Just simply. Who are these Christians? They love one another, they, proclaim, they testify to Jesus Christ. What do these Christians do? They love one another, they proclaim Jesus Christ. He is summarizing the life of this church for us, and there's two things. Powerfully enabled by God to love each other and to proclaim the man Jesus Christ. Pay attention here that the priorities that they have is preaching the gospel and loving each other sincerely. Dear saints, consider this, that the moment you are committed to other things than these, and you influence other church members to other things than these, you have failed in your duty to follow in the footsteps of the first church. The moment you do not prioritize love for the saints and all the things that go with love for the saints, you know all the things that go with love for the saints, unity of heart and mind, reconciliation when there has been an offense, forgiveness with each other, and self-forgiveness, self-forgetfulness, once you start saying those things are not so important, let's focus on other things, you will have failed to honor the Lord. Once you abandon love and focus on gossip, positions, factionalism, creating and fostering an us versus them within the church, talking to people who look like you and speak your language in order to get votes, to get things going in your way, once you do that, you must know that you will be going against the grace of God that enables us to love one another despite our multitude of differences. We were uh, talking at, uh, at Growth Group this past week and uh, Percy mentioned that there's so many people from Limpopo in this church. We should just rename it Limpopo Baptist Church. 
and we all laughed. Um, it is amazing how we have so many different people from different places, and um, and we praise God for those things. We are we are blessed to have so many different people, and yet we are blessed even more so that we are united together in a love that is robust. Long may it continue, dear heritage. Long may it continue. May we grow by God's grace to have the right priorities. Those of you who are becoming members of Heritage just now, let me charge you. Let me charge you very strongly. You are becoming a part of a body today that by God's grace has a track record of loving each other when it's tough. Yes, of course, we have our own issues. But by the Lord's help, we are here for each other when the need arises. Please, I implore you, don't come here with other outside agendas that will cause a rift among us. If you're becoming a member today, listen to me. Don't come here with other things and try and make those things the main thing. And work against the grace of God that God is working in us. When you say your covenant commitments in a moment, you are saying that you will love God and love us. You're saying that that you want to be held accountable to loving God supremely and loving us as his people. These people love one another and they also, on the other hand, testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Oh, dear saints, as you know, as you, you know as a church that this is our end, and it is, it is, it is not a, a, an, a, a heavy thing for me to remind you again what our priority is as a church. And that is to have coming from this place and from our members a pure preaching of the resurrection of Jesus Christ as the only hope that anyone can have. Purely that. This afternoon, Lord willing, we will see baptisms. And part of the beauty of baptism is that it signifies the resurrection hope that believers have in Christ. Our sins are forgiven. The old man has died in Christ and a new man has come alive. The reality that Jesus Christ did not stay dead means that we will also live with him. That our sins, vast as they are, overwhelming as they are, have been thoroughly and entirely forgiven. And we will be raised to new life. See, this is not just facts. This changes everything. This is, this is, the, this is the, 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 the information to bank your life on. That Jesus Christ rose from the dead. This message must be preached by us as a priority. And let me tell you, Dear friend, if you're here and you're not sure about Christ, you're not sure about Christianity, you're asking questions, let me, let me just speak to you for a moment. The grace that we have received, the forgiveness of sins, can be yours. That every sinner listening to me right now can be purified by the resurrected Messiah. You see, you've heard of Jesus Christ, haven't you? You've heard of the man who died and was raised. Well, the reason you've heard of him, the reason he's so famous, is because he is the only one who took up his life after he died and offers the same to everyone who believes in him. 
The hope of life after death. The hope of true and lasting life in Him, in His name. And all it takes, all it takes for you, dear friend, listen to me. All it takes for you to receive that grace for yourself is is to cry to Him for help. This is not a Lord who needs to be accessed through specific mediums and channels. This is not a Lord who needs to be accessed through, partic- to, through purchasing of certain things in order to make sure that you've, you've bought the right to speak to Him. This is a Lord who responds to people who cry out to Him for mercy from their own rooms. Right there as you're sitting now, you can cry to Him, Save me! Give me freedom from this burden of sin. And He will give it to you. Finally, look again uh, at the summary in verse 34. There was not a needy person among them. There was not a needy person among them. Here Luke is giving us the effects of their love. Because those who have things have made sure to provide for those who have nothing, the result is striking. There was not a needy person among them. Do you understand this? A group of over 5,000. This is a bold statement for Luke to make, but it's true. A group of over 5,000, there was not a single person going to sleep without food. Think about this. There were were widows here. There were orphaned children here. Some were slaves, perhaps. Many people below the poverty line. All of which are expected to be needy. And here, Luke describes this community as if heaven has arrived on earth. There was not a needy person among them. How can this be? How can it be? Because the Lord, because the kingdom of God has arrived and it has changed these people's hearts such that their relationship with their possessions has changed. That they now prize the people of God above getting more possessions. That they now prize the the well-being of God's people above focusing myopically on their own affairs. Jesus' arrival announced the arrival of the kingdom of God. And though it is not consummately here now, we have a clear taste over here. And this here is a massive taste. Now, poverty will hit this group as a whole later on in the book of Acts. We'll see when poverty hits them all when there's a famine. But, but, but let's savor this moment for now. Let's savor the words of Luke now. That there is a, a serious, wonderful thing that has occurred. Not a needy person among them. May God help us to be helpful to each other. Where if there are any among us here who have needs... May we be the the, the hand, the answers to prayer for each other. That if one of us has been praying in need, that that another one of us from within this group would be the one who provides that need. Far more than that, this should also make us long for the consummation of the kingdom of God. 
You see, we've seen many things here. We've seen signs where the people were speaking in different languages, which tells us that there's a coming in eternity where, every, where all the languages will be praising God. And then we saw the healing of a lame man signifying, shouting that there is coming a future where there will be no lame men and women. There will be no sickness. There will be no uh, uh, weakness of body. And now we're hearing, we're seeing a small sign, a small thing, where there, are, there is no one who is needy among them. Reminding us that poverty will be eradicated in the future. When Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, returns in His kingdom, we will be redeemed. And we are not only that, not only us, but our bodies. And we will live with Him eternally in a perfect heaven. Let's pray. Indeed, Lord Jesus, we cry out like the bride in Revelation 22. Come, Lord Jesus. Come. Come, Lord Jesus, and eradicate poverty among your people. Thank you for this taste that we see here. That there will be a time where you wipe all the tears of your peoples away. That you will remove from them hunger far. Thank you for this moment in time where we we get a taste of what will be. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to have the same attitudes as this church to work here so that those among us might have something. Those who have nothing might have something to eat. We pray that if any among us has been stealing in the past, that they might stop stealing and, like Paul says, might go and work hard so that they have something to share. Oh Lord, we pray, work this wonder even in us here at Heritage. Amen.